Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So, talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com. Finding your perfect home was hard, but thanks to Burrow, furnishing it has never been easier. Burrow's easy-to-assemble modular sofas and sectionals are made from premium, durable materials, including stain and scratch-resistant fabrics. So they're not just comfortable and stylish, they're built to last. Plus, every single Burrow order ships free right to your door. Right now, get 15% off your first order at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's 15% off at burrow.com slash ACAST. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Welcome to Season 4, Episode 22 of They Walk Among Us, a podcast dedicated to UK true crime. Please listen to Season 4, Episode 21 for Part 1 of this two-part case. To gain exclusive access to Season 1 and ad-free versions of our episodes a few days before their general release, head to patreon.com forward slash they walk among us. Listener caution is advised, as this episode contains adult themes and descriptions that some listeners may find distressing. Nisha Patel Nasri was attacked and murdered. Detectives believe that following a break-in, she was stabbed with her own knife. It was at first postulated the intruder had wanted the keys for the expensive limousines that were parked outside her home. Or perhaps, and less probable, a volunteer work as a special constable had made her a target. Officers working the case viewed CCTV footage around the time of Nisha's murder. The recording showed a car close to the scene. That evidence would lead them to the front door of her husband Fadi Nasri, who the police were alleging had arranged for a hitman to dispatch his wife. But why? Today, Fadi Nasri is in custody at a West London police station. He was arrested this morning over the fatal stabbing of his wife. 
Now detectives believe the cheating husband wanted Nisha dead. Fadi Nasri and three other men denied the charges they faced when they appeared at the Old Bailey in a plea and case management hearing during July 2007. A trial was scheduled for February of the following year, with reporters trying to understand how Fadi Nasri was connected to the three men he was sharing charges with. Proceedings began at the Old Bailey, the Central Criminal Court of England and Wales in London, during February 2008. In the opening remarks, the details of Fadi Nasri's secret double life were revealed. The court was told that Nasri was having an affair with a sex worker while he was married to Nisha. Along with Fadi Nasri, Roger Leslie, Tony Emanuel and Jason Jones were all accused of playing a part in the murder of Nisha Patel Nasri. All four of the defendants denied they were involved, but Prosecutor Michael Worsley QC explained to the jury how they were linked to the crime. It was alleged by the Crown that Tony Emanuel was driving the car which transported Jason Jones to the scene. He was the one who allegedly stabbed and killed Nisha. Roger Leslie, a drug dealer, was acting as the, quote, go-between. Leslie had previous convictions for assault and possession of both knives and a firearm. Michael Worsley QC spoke about the four defendants, telling the court, The prosecution say on May 11th they acted together in the sense they combined together in bringing about a certain result, namely the death of Nazri's wife. This was done at her home in Sudbury Avenue, Wembley. There was a single stab wound through an artery in her left groin that caused her to bleed to death. Nasri had a number of motives which taken together provided the motive, we suggest, for murder in this case. The motive in itself, of course, is not enough to prove guilt. Nasri wanted his wife dead. He used Leslie to get somebody as the tool to do the job. Emmanuel took the killer to the scene, and the killer we say was Jones. Jurors would learn that Nasri had amounted debts of £102,000 and planned to have his wife killed to obtain £350,000 in life insurance and securing her remaining assets which included their home on Sudbury Avenue and a share of a family property on Rugby Avenue nearby. Before she died, Nisha had confided to a friend that she was thinking of getting a divorce. The limousine business was in her name, as she had helped start it with a loan of £15,000. She also had a share of over £50,000 in the family home. This would leave Nasri struggling to repay his debts if they separated. The prosecution felt a missing set of house keys played an intricate part in the murder, as they could have been handed to Jason Jones to unlock the property and surprise Nisha, who managed to run out of the door but was stabbed to death before she could escape. 
Addressing jurors, Michael Worsley QC said, If the killer had the keys provided to him, who had the opportunity to do that? Why Nazri? The Crown proposed that the intruders who appeared at the home just under a week before Nisha was killed were on a dummy run, planning the eventual act so they knew what to expect. The court heard from Nisha and Fadi's neighbour, Luca Thompson, who rushed to Nisha's aid as she collapsed following her attack. The electrician lived on Sudbury Avenue with his wife. The couple heard screams before Luca ran outside and his wife Geraldine called 999. He said there was one single scream, then the second scream. I got up and looked out the window and I saw Nisha outside. She was staggering with her right hand over her stomach. She was standing up. Eventually she fell. She was breathing slowly taking deep breaths with difficulty, but she wasn't talking, so I was trying to get her to talk and tell me her name. Nisha's brother Katan Patel said Nisha and Fadi appeared by all accounts to be in love and they had a beautiful home. Katan would describe them as acting like lovebirds. The couple had previously lived in a property on Rugby Avenue, which Nisha and her brother had inherited after the death of their mother. The sibling's father had died five years before that, and though Nisha had suffered a string of personal tragedies in a short space of time, friends would say that she remained upbeat. Also, Fadi Nasri's business ventures were not without their problems. He was threatened by a woman after a failed business deal, who told him she would slit his wife's throat. A worrying threat, and with his wife being stabbed later that year, it was no surprise that Nisha's family and the police had every reason to believe that Nasri was not involved in his wife's murder. Katan confirmed that there had been intruders inside the porch of his sister's property in Wembley a week prior to her eventual death. After speaking with Nisha before she died, Katan was told the men had mentioned the name Paul. Another question that hung over the head of Fadi Nasri was a dating agency that he had ran, Seventh Heaven. Nisha's brother was almost certain this was, in fact, an escort agency. Katan Patel would tell the court about Nasri's surprising behaviour. He had left Nisha's bedside after she had been attacked going home to pick up a fresh pair of socks and a diamond watch. Following his sister's murder, Katan noticed that Nasri would just disappear, behaviour he found strange, especially as the family should have been coming together after Nisha's death. Upon learning that his brother-in-law could have been involved, Katan told the court that he came to detest Fadi Nasri. Nisha Patel Nasri's murder had weighed heavily on the conscience of Daniel Fox, and after he was arrested in regards to an unrelated crime, while in custody, he told officers that Jason Jones had carried out the murder. 
The revelation was revealed to Fox when the two men had been drinking at the Soma Bar in Stepney Green, East London. Fox recounted his conversation with Jason Jones, his friend of two years. Jones allegedly regaled Fox with a tale of how he bettered a special constable with a knife. Jason said he went into the house and the police officer, she had a knife in her hand. She had a knife and he didn't, Fox would tell the court. He said, when someone's in front of you with a knife, it was me or her, and he stabbed her in the leg. He said she died because he'd hit the main artery. During the investigation before the trial, police had spoken with Jason Jones' estranged wife. She told officers that her husband had contacted her during the same month as the murder, telling her he was in, quote, trouble and wanted to be picked up and needed somewhere to stay. She refused to help him. From the stand... Fadi Nasri told the jury at the Old Bailey that he had no hand in the life insurance policy that his wife had taken out. He was watching television when the details were being discussed with a financial advisor. Nasri also denied that the limousine hire business he owned was failing, explaining that both he and his murdered wife, who the prosecution alleged had been killed upon Nasri's instruction, hid a large portion of their earnings to avoid paying tax. According to Nasri, along with Nisha's hairdressing business, they had a combined yearly income of £210,000. £150,000 allegedly came from him. When recalling the moment he received the news that his wife had been attacked, Nasri said, I honestly thought the first time I got the call that somebody was winding me up or playing jokes. After his wife's death, Fadi Nasri went on holiday with the woman he had been having an affair with, Laura McKean, and the couple moved in together. Asked by his defence counsel Orlando Powell QC about his reluctance to tell police about the affair, the defendant said, I was embarrassed. I felt bad about what had happened. When presented with evidence from his own mobile phone, Fadi Nasri admitted he was romantically involved with Laura McKean. At first, Nasri had laughed off the photo, which pictured an image of McKean's legs. He told officers he was not involved with the Lithuanian mother of one as she was too tall for him. But he rang police later that day, admitting that he was sleeping with her, paying her for sex. He claimed that their affair started three months before Nisha was murdered. Nasri told officers that Nisha was not aware of his extramarital affair. He travelled to Egypt with his lover, telling his wife he was visiting a sick uncle. When Nisha's family found out, they wanted nothing more to do with him. Things went from bad to worse for her surviving family. When Nasri spoke with his lawyer, and a court order was put in place freezing Nisha's brother's assets during the period in which the will was being finalised. Jurors would be told that shortly after Nisha Patel Nasri was stabbed to death, a widower travelled to Las Vegas, Los Angeles, Spain 
and Ascot with his lover. A detail which wasn't released until after the trial was that Laura McKean was the police's first suspect. She was questioned by detectives at the start of September 2006, dismissing a possible theory that she was a jealous lover who wanted Nisha dead. After the interview, she was quickly ruled out. Still adamant that he was innocent, Fadi Nasri told jurors about being called to a police station on December 6th, 2006, when he was informed that two men had been arrested in connection with the murder of his wife, one of which was his friend, Roger Leslie. From the stand, he said, I was in fear, scared, crying. Roger Leslie, the man who allegedly acted as a go-between for Nasri, watched on from the dock as his co-defendant spoke about Leslie's facial piercings. Nasri claimed that police had told him that each of the studs represented a person Roger Leslie had killed. When questioned by Tony Emanuel's defence counsel, if perhaps he had organised the attack on his wife, Nasri exclaimed, That is absolutely disgusting what you are saying. Why would I want to get my wife robbed? I love my wife very much. Were you playing the macho man trying to teach her a lesson? The QC replied. Nasri denied the allegation. What for? 100% no. I wasn't having any problems with Nisha. The questions were relentless. Prosecutor Michael Worsley QC presented to the court a man that threw a go-between had arranged his wife's murder to pay off his ever-increasing debts, and soon after her death, Nasri was booking hotel stays with his lover. I was in a bad way, and sex was the last thing on my mind, Nasri argued. The prosecutor claimed that Nasri was spending money like water on his new lover, an allegation that the defendant also denied. Text messages from Nisha Patel Nasri were read to the court in which she mentioned to a friend that she was sick of being stuck at home alone every night. This was news to Nasri. He insisted that his now-deceased wife, quote, never ever complained about that, never ever complained about a divorce. Although Nasri admitted he argued with his wife, he said Nisha was not the kind of person he could stay cross with for long. He said he loved his wife very much, and described her as courageous for standing up to the men that came to their home. The more the prosecutor chipped away at the defendants, the more the jury were told. But it was difficult to separate the fact from fiction. As mobile telephone records would show, the four men had made contact throughout the evening that Nisha was murdered. Roger Leslie, the alleged go-between, was now suggesting that on the night of the murder, Fadi Nasri was purchasing just over £40,000 of cocaine from him. The money for the drugs had allegedly been stored in the boot of a limousine parked outside the home on Sudbury Avenue. Leslie had sent one of his runners, as he would call them, to pick it up. Roger Leslie agreed that he had been uncooperative when interviewed by officers, 
they had some suspicions he might be dealing drugs as he had past convictions. But Leslie refused to provide any details on where he initially sourced the cocaine or the name of the cook who made it. Regardless of Leslie's claims, one thing the police could solidly prove was the contact between the defendants. Around 11.30pm on the evening of May 11th, 2006, Nasri called Roger Leslie. Not 30 seconds later, a call was made by Leslie to Tony Emanuel's phone, which was picked up by Jason Jones. After they spoke, Roger Leslie called Nasri back, who then left home to play snooker with a friend. At almost the precise moment Nisha hears someone breaking into her home, Nasri is outside his friend's flat as he attempts to provide himself with an alibi, so the prosecution would allege. Shortly before the attack, Nisha calls 999, telling them that someone was after her. Two minutes after that, Tony Emanuel's phone is again used to call Roger Leslie, and mere moments later a call is made by Leslie to Fadi Nasri. The contact between the defendants was described as ceaseless by the prosecution. Tony Emanuel had been labelled the getaway driver by police, but he claimed that while he knew of a drug deal and did drive the car on the night of the murder, he was unaware of the plan to kill Nisha Patel Nasri. He gave a statement to that effect after he was questioned, implicating Jason Jones. Fadi Nasri argued that he was not involved in his wife's murder or any drug deal that was taking place. The contact between him and his co-defendants was innocent. It was about business or general conversation, he would say. It was just coincidence. With the co-defendants slowly turning on each other, Jason Jones, the man accused of stabbing Nisha, told the court he had been offered £20,000 by Tony Emanuel to admit to the killing. The two were in Belmarsh prison together while on remand. Jones' defence counsel asked his client if he was outside the home of Nisha Patel Nasri on May 11th, 2006. He denied that he was and said that Emmanuel was looking for someone else to blame. Asked by Stephen Camelish, Emmanuel's QC, if he was frustrated about Emmanuel's admission, Jones went on to say, I am very angry. I have spent 470 odd days away from my family because of lies by your client. He's trying to use me as a sacrificial lamb for his own purposes. Stephen Camelish QC pointed to the testimony made by Sylvester Joseph, a friend to Jason Jones who said that when he spoke to him after Jones was released on bail, he asked Jones if he carried out the killing. The defendant on the stand reportedly stated, You know the life I live. Jones, however, dismissed this. It apparently was not an admission of guilt. Sylvester knows my character enough to know why I answered like that, he said. You aren't Sylvester, you don't know me. 
You weren't the godfather of my child or the best man at my wedding. Jones was asked about his allegation that the driver, Tony Emanuel, had offered him money to admit to the killing. Emanuel's counsel said the offer would only have been made to an idiot. I think Tony thought I was an idiot, replied Jones, who said that he would not have admitted to killing anyone anyway. After closing arguments, the jury now had to decide the guilt of the four accused. The jury were again told by the Crown Prosecutor that Fadi Nasri, Nisha Patel Nasri's husband, who had been living a double life, killed his wife as he was in love with another woman and wanted to obtain £350,000 in life insurance. Nasri had allegedly asked Roger Leslie to act as a go-between, employing Jason Jones to kill Nisha, with Tony Emanuel, the getaway driver. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Ruby Frankie was known by millions as a very tough mom. That's exactly the way she wanted it. The social media star amassed a huge following of supporters and detractors alike, preaching the values of strict discipline. But you'll learn in a new podcast available exclusively on Wondery Plus how the small empire built by this momfluencer crumbled the moment her 12-year-old son escaped their home and called 911. Wondery and Law and & Crime bring you the new podcast, The Rise and Fall of Ruby Frankie, which explores the allegations of starvation, torture, and emotional abuse leveled against Frankie and her business partner, Jody Hildebrandt. Learn about the family's path to stardom, the depravity investigators uncovered inside the home, and hear in-depth analysis of the ongoing criminal trial. Listen to The Rise and Fall of Ruby Frankie exclusively and ad-free on Wondery Plus. Join Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. Subtle results. Still you, but with fewer lines. Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, is a prescription medicine used to temporarily make moderate to severe frown lines, crow's feet, and forehead lines look better in adults. Effects of Botox Cosmetic may spread hours to weeks after injection, causing serious symptoms. Alert your doctor right away as difficulty swallowing, speaking, breathing, eye problems, or muscle weakness may be a sign of a life-threatening condition. Patients with these conditions before injection are at highest risk. Don't receive Botox Cosmetic if you have a skin infection. Side effects may include allergic reactions, injection site pain, headache, eyebrow and eyelid drooping, and eyelid swelling. Allergic reactions can include rash, welts, asthma symptoms, and dizziness. Tell your doctor about medical history, muscle or nerve conditions including ALS or Lou Gehrig's disease, myasthenia gravis, or Lambert-Eaton syndrome and medications, including botulinum toxins, as these may increase the risk of serious side effects. For full safety information, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. See for yourself at BotoxCosmetic.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. 
For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. The judge requested a majority decision on all charges. However, after six days of fraught deliberation, the jury were told by the judge that he would instead accept a majority verdict. The jury would soon reach a decision on all charges. Following a trial that lasted three and a half months with 135 witnesses, on May 28, 2008, Fadi Nasri was found guilty of his wife's murder. Friends and colleagues paid tribute to the young woman, whom it seemed might have been the victim of a bungled robbery. Her husband, Fadi, seemingly distraught, went on to make a public appeal for help in catching her killer. The person who knew something was closer to home and evidently had no conscience. The jury decided the 34-year-old had organised his wife's murder so he could claim her £350,000 life insurance and her share of her late parents' house. Along with Fadi Nasri, Roger Leslie who arranged the killing and Jason Jones who carried out the act were also found guilty. Tony Emanuel, who the prosecution had alleged was involved in the crime, was acquitted. As the jury returned its guilty verdicts, car driver Tony Emanuel, on being cleared by the jury, simply ran from the court. It transpired that when police brought in Emanuel for questioning, he was shown mobile phone records of the night in question. He informed officers that Jason Jones had asked to borrow his phone. In a statement given to police on December 7th, he wrote, I, Tony Emanuel, wish to say that on the 11th of May 2006, I was asked by a friend to drive him to an address in the Wembley area. I do not wish to disclose his details because I am convinced that both my own safety and that of my family will be put in serious danger if I do notwithstanding police protection. My friend informed me that he wished to collect some ecstasy tablets from an address. I did not know where I was going, and he directed me down various streets. I cannot be sure of a precise time, but it was in the evening. My friend asked me to use the phone, and I am unsure who he phoned, but from the police disclosure I believe this must be Roger Leslie. I overheard directions being given. At no time did I contemplate or have any knowledge that my friend may injure anybody. My friend asked me to pull over and he left the vehicle. I stayed in the driver's seat to wait for his return. I thought that my friend was going to carry out a drugs deal. He then returned to the car and was out of breath. I did not see a knife. He told me to drive. I did not see where my friend had gone or what happened but I now believe that he murdered the victim in question. Shortly afterwards, I was asked to stop, which I did. I thought my friend needed to urinate, although I was later told by my friend that he had discarded the knife. 
My friend later told me that he had stabbed someone after the victim had pulled a knife out. My friend told me that Roger Leslie and the victim's husband were involved in a plan to hurt the victim. I was only made aware of this after the events in question, to which I refer. Signed T. Emanuel. The Crown had unsuccessfully tried Emanuel, and they rejected in a court of law his story regarding the drugs deal, so they would not be able to pursue any drug-related charges against him. Simply put, they had no corroborating evidence that it took place, and would face a difficult legal challenge if they tried to do so, as they had dismissed his admission. Following the verdict, Katan Patel Nisha's brother addressed reporters outside the Old Bailey. I am relieved at today's verdict and that the men responsible will remain in jail. However, it will not bring my little sister back. He described the crime as barbaric, vicious, brutal and savage. It is not a man but a coward who attacks a vulnerable woman with a knife. He definitely planned the whole murder. The fact that the man she loved was responsible makes this all the more surreal. Catan recalled the amount of blood he saw at the scene, and he was almost certain his sister was going to die. From her bedside, along with Nisha's husband, they were told by doctors that she would not survive her injuries. After this incident, I let him stay in my house. I said to him once we'd got told by the doctor that Nisha hasn't made it, I put my hand on his shoulder and I said to him, don't worry, I'll look after you. So I had no idea whatsoever. When asked about how he would like his sister to be remembered, Catan told reporters, everybody can see her photographs in the papers, on the internet and in the news. She is always smiling, she was always bubbly and she had that cheeky smile on her face. If you just look at those pictures with the expression on her face, with her smile and her eyes, that picture is worth a thousand words. Sir Ian Blair Metropolitan Police Commissioner told the waiting press that Nisha's death had been a huge loss to her family, friends and to the Metropolitan Police Service, which she served so enthusiastically. Her murder was labelled as the ultimate betrayal by Detective Chief Inspector Nick Scola, who described the 29-year-old who lost her life as, quote, an innocent and loving wife who was murdered so that her unfaithful and selfish husband could lead a luxury lifestyle with his younger mistress. The three men convicted of Nisha Patel Nasri's murder would be facing a life sentence, but their minimum term would be decided the following month. From the Old Bailey during late June 2008, Fadi Nasri was told by Recorder of London Judge Peter Beaumont he would face a sentence of 20 years before he would be eligible for parole. Roger Leslie, the go-between, as he was described, received 18 years, and Jason Jones, who stabbed Nisha to death, 
received the same sentence as her husband who arranged the killing. 20 years. Katan Patel Nisha's brother again provided a statement to the media. It's a huge relief that this nightmare is finally over and that the men responsible will remain in prison for a very long time. However, no sentence given to the murderers will ever replace Nisha and its outcome will never compare with the suffering it's caused or the magnitude of our loss. I am still absolutely distraught emotionally and physically. After the trial, Fadi Nasri's first wife, Simona Marin, was interviewed by the Sunday Mirror. She had arrived in London at the start of 1993, and after a chance meeting on the street, Nasri asked for her number, telling the Romanian-born Simona how beautiful she was. Nasri proposed on top of a funfair ferris wheel as the city lights illuminated the streets below them. Simona thought she had met Mr. Wright, and her dream of being swept off her feet was quickly coming true. A registry office in North London was the location of their wedding ceremony. They had only known each other a few weeks by this point. But cracks were already starting to show after the couple began arguing the night before the wedding, and Nasri threw a clock at his wife-to-be. Her dreams were fast turning into a nightmare. Nazra's behaviour became ever more controlling, with Simona constantly berated. She wasn't sure what her husband might do next, as on occasion he would apologise for his behaviour, telling her he would change before lashing out again. The signs of coercive control were making themselves apparent. I fell for it, Simona would later tell a reporter. The couple split up three years later. Nazri had physically assaulted Simona, calling her a whore before the police were called. She left the relationship with little, as Nazri had sold all of her belongings when she was out of the flat they shared. The last time the pair spoke was three years before Nisha's death. Nazri wanted to get their divorce paperwork signed, as he was marrying Nisha. The two women briefly spoke on the phone, and Simona recounted later that she wished she had told Nisha what her husband-to-be was really like. I have played that phone call over and over in my mind, Simona would say. When the couple first began dating, Nasri told Simona how he was raised by his aunt, as his mother had abandoned him when he was only young. She left with another man. Simona was then introduced to his father, Farouk, a man Nasri looked up to. His hero, he would reportedly say. While it is not surprising for a young man to see his father through a rose-tinted lens, at the time Farouk was on the run from police, he had threatened a lover with a pump-action shotgun and was later sentenced to seven years in prison. Following his release... Nazri's father would go on to set a light to the home of Jennifer Elverson, a woman he was then romantically involved with. The fire would kill not only Jennifer, but her seven-year-old son. Some reports alleged that he had in fact coated the mother and son in petrol before setting the house ablaze. Nazri's father 
Nazri's father would take his own life in 2000 while awaiting trial in Leicester prison. He made a noose from the bedsheets and in what appeared to be a suicide pact with another prisoner, they both ended their lives. When news reports first broke on Nisha Patel Nazri's murder, journalists discovered that Nisha's husband's father had taken his own life after killing Jennifer Elverson. Her mother Margaret was interviewed about the incident. Sympathetic and unaware that like his father he sought to kill his partner, Margaret, Jennifer Elverson's mother, would say of Fadi Nazri, I know what he is going through. I feel sorry for him because, for him, life has just been misery upon misery. So where are we now? Fadi Nasri would later be ordered to pay back £430,000 in legal costs. He had claimed legal aid during the trial, but after an investigation by the Legal Services Commission, it was discovered he had made over £400,000 through the sale of a property in Wembley, and his assets included expensive jewellery and the limousines he had used for his business. Roger Leslie, the go-between, appealed his sentence in 2009, with his legal counsel submitting that his client was forced to lie at trial. It was alleged he was threatened by one of his co-defendants, Jason Jones. Martin Hicks QC, who appeared on behalf of Leslie, argued that the jury would have taken the lies into account when assessing his client's guilt, and had he not done so, this might have significantly affected the jury's approach, therefore making the conviction unsafe. The appeal was dismissed. The heartbreak for Nisha's family did not stop after the trial. As only days following the sentencing hearing, Stories began to appear in the tabloids highlighting that Nisha knew about her husband's dating agency, which it turned out was in fact an escort agency. In court, it was revealed that Nisha had been subject to disciplinary action when she tried to protect her husband after police started to look into his activities. She received what was described as words of advice from her superiors, as she had shown her warrant card to a client of her husband's, who owed close to £2,000 to the Seventh Heaven Agency. Her brother Katan Patel told BBC News, Allegations suggesting that my Nisha was a secret vice madame and one who abused her status as a policewoman come as a total shock and I am disgusted and offended by the comments made. The escort business was solely run by her husband and Nisha didn't approve of this and wanted him to stop it. My little sister was murdered while alone at her home by a man hired by her husband in a callous and predetermined crime. She is now being subjected to a verbal attack in an unreasonable and unnecessary way, and I am appalled that these spiteful words are allowed to be produced. 
Before she had met Fardy, her record was squeaky clean. I believe Nisha had a lapse of judgement and was pushed by a malicious man with a strong influence. In the unenviable position of having to defend the actions of a woman stabbed to death who gave her free time to the community, Katan Patel would say, Whatever mistakes my sister made in her life, she did not deserve to be murdered, and I hope common sense prevails when reading into these vicious allegations, and I urge that her memory is respected. Thank you for listening, and special thanks to our Patreon supporters. You can reach us through social media on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram. And for more information on this episode, please see the show notes or visit our website, theywalkamonguspodcast.com. to Hulu this March, where our new shows and movies will keep you streaming all month long. Catch the award-winning movie, Poor Things, starring Emma Stone, Mark Ruffalo, and Willem Dafoe. Check out the new documentary, Freaknik, The Wildest Party Never Told, about the iconic Atlanta street party. And don't miss FX's Shogun, a reimagining of the epic tale, starring Anna Sawai. So, what are you waiting for? Go stream something new on Hulu. Subtle results, still you, but with fewer lines. Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, is a prescription medicine used to temporarily make moderate to severe frown lines, crow's feet, and forehead lines look better in adults. Effects of Botox Cosmetic may spread hours to weeks after injection, causing serious symptoms. Alert your doctor right away as difficulty swallowing, speaking, breathing, eye problems, or muscle weakness may be a sign of a life-threatening condition. Patients with these conditions before injection are at highest risk. Don't receive Botox Cosmetic if you have a skin infection. Side effects may include allergic reactions, injection site pain, headache, eyebrow and eyelid drooping, and eyelid swelling. Allergic reactions can include rash, welts, asthma symptoms, and dizziness. Tell your doctor about medical history, muscle or nerve conditions including ALS or Lou Gehrig's disease, myasthenia gravis, or Lambert-Eden syndrome and medications, including botulinum toxins, as these may increase the risk of serious side effects. For full safety information, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. See for yourself at BotoxCosmetic.com. Ruby Frankie was known by millions as a very tough mom. That's exactly the way she wanted it. The social media star amassed a huge following of supporters and detractors alike, preaching the values of strict discipline. But you'll learn in a new podcast available exclusively on Wondery Plus how the small empire built by this momfluencer crumbled the moment her 12-year-old son escaped their home and called 911. Wondery and Law and & Crime bring you the new podcast, The Rise and Fall of Ruby Frankie, which explores the allegations of starvation, torture, and emotional abuse leveled against Frankie and her business partner, Jody Hildebrandt. Learn about the family's path to stardom, the depravity investigators uncovered inside the home, and hear in-depth analysis of the ongoing criminal trial. 
Listen to the rise and fall of Ruby Frankie exclusively and ad-free on Wondery Plus. Join Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts.